Welcome to Fierce City, a podcast where we will delve into the stories, lives, places and events that built the greatest capital city in the world. I'm PJ. And I'm Satu. And we are your hosts on this journey to discover the lesser known history of London. Today we're picking up where we left off with Downing Street Part 1 and bringing you Downing Street Part 2. So last we heard, Queen Victoria was on the throne and Downing Street had established itself as the principal residence for our Prime Minister. And in fact, from the time of Benjamin Disraeli, almost all of the Prime Ministers have lived at number 10. And there's been continuous Prime Ministerial occupation since 1902. While true, there has been a bit of fudging on that front. For example, when Tony Blair moved next door to number 11 because he had a big family and supposedly needed the space. True. So the tumultuous centuries are mostly behind it and Downing Street can smugly enjoy its status as official residence. To reflect this change in the nature of Downing Street from eye of the storm of corruption and Victorian mores to the more level-headed, grey-suited bureaucrats of the 20th century, we're going to mix up our format with part two. Instead of taking you through the prominent residents in chronological order, we're just going to give you all the best bits of the last 120 years of Downing Street history. So this is, of course, all the gossipy stuff and the cats. (laughs) So without further ado, come along with us as we play Cat or Catastrophe! So how this is going to work is that Sato and I have a stack of cards in front of us which have all been shuffled together, some say cat, some say catastrophe. And we're just going to at random pick them out and give you one of the two topics. I really enjoy the mild peril aspect of this episode of the podcast. So without further ado, Sato, would you do the honours? I'd love to. Okay. It's a cat. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good start. So I'll go in with the cat. Um, And we'll talk about the actual first cat. And it's appropriate to talk about cats first, I suppose, because some people may be thinking, why Why are we talking about cats at all? And Downing Street go together in any which way. And I suppose it's because of the famous current mouser, which we'll get onto. But mousers have been a theme throughout government in, in the UK. And it's basically because of all our all of our decrepit buildings, they need to have somebody to get rid of all the vermin. Oh, and the most cost-effective way is a cat to get rid of all the mice. So the first official government cat was called Peter. And he was adopted by the Home Office in 1929. And he was actually on the payroll. The Treasury initially paid him a salary of one pence per day. I don't know how much cat food cost back in 1929, but this one pence was actually meant to just be a subsidy, and Peter's job was to chase away the mice and therefore eat his kill. So just today, I learnt that the reason that they did that was not so much because Peter was going hungry, like I said, but he was super overfed because everyone who worked at Downing Street was bringing him treats all day, every day. So the one penny a day was designed to feed him so they could say, look, he's being fed, stop giving him like little chocolates or whatever it is you're giving him. Well, absolutely, because he had to be kept hungry enough in order to kind of seek out all the mice and therefore be kept for the next X number of years. He didn't want to be made redundant or forced to resign. no. And Peter, the cat, the first cat, served for 17 years, and so he survived World War II, and he saw six different Prime Ministers during his time. Right, I'll go next. Please let it be a cat. It's a cat again. Right, my randomly selected cat fact is, 
In 2011, a new Minister of State was announced by Prime Minister David Cameron uh, after the Defence Home Secretary and Sports and Culture Ministers came Chief Mouser to the Cabinet Office, Larry. Larry is probably the most famous mouser of uh, 10 Downing Street. He, does, he, he has a Twitter account, doesn't he? Oh, does he? I yeah. haven't seen that. A really popular Twitter account. Um, Larry the Tabby Cat was adopted from Battersea Cats and Dogs Home, which is good, to help the mouse and rat problem at number 10 because it was rampant. As with many things to do with Downing Street, Larry is not kept in opulence by the state because it's obviously a complete shambles there. The staff of Downing Street pay for his upkeep themselves, so that's quite different from the one penny a day we've just learned about Peter the First having. Um, this is presumably because they're sick of the mice, but also everyone really likes him. As you said, he's super popular. Like He appears in the news all the time. Unfortunately, Larry is actually not very good at catching mice. According to the Daily Telegraph... The Prime Minister was once witnessed throwing a silver fork at a mouse who was boldly running across the floor during a dinner with cabinet ministers. When asked if Larry should resign, a Downing Street spokesperson responded, Larry brings a lot of pleasure to a lot of people. In further evidence of a cover-up, the Downing Street website describes Larry's work as in the tactical planning stage. (laughs) Uh, Larry's also a bit scrappy. Uh, And there's footage online of him facing off with the Foreign Office cat Palmerston and George Osborne's cat Freya, who has been vanished off the scene because obviously didn't get along with Larry. But he's seen off all comers so far and remains the chief mouser as of September 2017. Apparently there's a bit of a heir apparent in Boris's cat, who Larry also likes to try and find. So topical. Okay, I'm going to pick one. I really hope it's catastrophe this time, otherwise it's just going to be a podcast entirely about cats. Okay, it is catastrophe. Excellent. So, back in the late 1930s, Neville Chamberlain was Prime Minister. He returned from a trip to Germany and was cheered by crowds after appeasing Hitler. Upon returning to England, he went to number 10 with his parliamentary private secretary, Alec Douglas Home. Someone said to the Prime Minister, Neville, go to the window and repeat the historic statement, Peace with Honour, which Disraeli had said to the crowds on Downing Street when he returned from agreeing another treaty somewhere. Honestly, I'm not even going to tell you. Chamberlain said sniffily, I don't do things of that kind, but his people badgered him into saying something. He went to the window and grudgingly said, Peace for our time. Did he say it in that way? (laughs) That's my impression of Neville Chamberlain grudgingly saying something. The reason this is a catastrophe is that this was the year 1938 and the phrase started to seem really ironic really quickly. Just a year later, Britain and everyone else was at war with Hitler and to this day, people draw parallels between Chamberlain's attempts at appeasement and any time that leaders are reluctant to start a war or do anything, really. Like, it's, it comes up a lot. So, a catastrophe and a regrettable catchphrase. Another Neville, who was actually his ambassador in Germany, um, wrote a memo to the Prime Minister around the same time, saying he couldn't believe that Hitler would risk all of his work on the chance of war. And he actually had Goering personally assure him that there'd be no surprises at all in the next few years. Oh, well, naturally, if Goering and Hitler say that they're not going to do anything out of order. Hey, pick a card, PJ. Catastrophe. Okay, cool. I am loving these, actually. There's a lot of scandals in here. Okay, this is bombed in the Blitz. Number 10 wasn't directly bombed during the Blitz, so but bear with me. There is interesting (laughs) stuff in here, but it did take a bit of a pounding. All its front windows were blown out, and some of the rooms were pretty badly damaged. 
But this was all kept a secret at the time because it would have been such a propaganda coup for the Germans to know that they'd managed to score all this damage to the home of the Prime Minister. Winston Churchill is noted for being quite single-minded and grumbled immensely if he had to go into a shelter, but he did order his servants to go. And even though Churchill was decamped to a flat across the road from Downing Street called the Annex, he had a great affection for number 10 and would come back really often just to dine there. And he dined in a room beneath the cabinet room, which was usually used for office staff. And there was a shelter also constructed near the kitchen of Downing Street, which could house about 30 people in bunks. One night when Churchill was dining, bombs fell a few hundred yards away from the house. And he twigged that he was concerned there was a large window by the kitchen. And whilst his staff were busying away there cooking his dinner, he went over and ordered them all to go to a shelter. At which point, his cook recounted the following exchange. You be Churchill, I be the cook? Go for it. (laughs) So he said sharply, why aren't you in the shelter? If you'd been in time for dinner, I should have been. (laughs) (laughs) That's scary, scarily good. (laughs) And then here's Churchill's account of what happened next. And I'm not going to do it all as Churchill, I'm sorry to say. I had been seated at the table only about three minutes when a really loud crash and a violent shock showed that the house had been struck. The kitchen, the pantry and the offices on the treasury side were shattered. We went into the kitchen to view the scene. The devastation was complete. The bomb had fallen 50 yards away from the treasury and the blast had smitten the large, tidy kitchen with all of its bright saucepans and crockery into a heap of black dust and rubble. The big plate glass window had been hurled into fragments and splinters across the room and would, of course, cut its occupants, if there had been any, into pieces. And with this, the uh, sassy cook, Miss Landemere, who of uh, Satu's great voicing fame earlier, was taken from the shelter to the kitchen and she was so upset with the wreck, but mainly on account of the general untidiness. And apparently because her souffle was ruined. They are tricky. In the book we read about this period, there are some bad time stories about Churchill, which I'm afraid we're going to hit you with. He sounds like he terrorised people a bit. Uh, One of his secretaries had such a major anxiety attack about even going into his room, she just stood outside muttering to herself and had to be replaced. Which, that doesn't sound like a nice workplace environment to me. It was the 40s. If Churchill decided to work in bed, again, not very professional... He would hilariously say that he needed two women tonight, i.e. two secretaries. I would just been like, HR, Downing Street HR, I need to talk to you. Obviously, Christopher Jones, the author of this book, which I have suffered through. I'm sorry if he's not going to be listening, but I hate this book so much. He finds this kind of thing brilliant and complete bants, which just shows you history in general. Uh, there's now a portrait of Churchill in number 10 entitled Blood, Sweat and Tears. But whose those were, I don't know. The other book we read, which is by Minnie, is a lot less bants about the situation and does paint Churchill as a bit of a terror as well. Oh, right, okay. Um, But without the kind of sideline of lols about it. Yeah, like sexual harassment's hilarious if it's the 1940s. Right. Next card. Next card, please, Satu. Oh, okay. It is a catastrophe. Okay, the title is Centuries-Old Tradition of Massive Overspending on Crumbling House Upheld. Snappy. (laughs) Whether it's 1760 or 1960, works on Downing Street always take twice as long to do and cost at least twice as much as planned. 
And also, Downing Street doesn't come fully furnished. Furniture was something that was brought in usually by its residents, and similarly, it had been customary for the cutlery and linen to be provided by the incumbent Prime Minister's family. So when Ramsay MacDonald, who was one of the founders of the Labour Party and was actually the first Labour Prime Minister, when he came to power, his wife Margaret literally went to the January sales to go buy bed linen, tablecloths, cups, plates and silverware. This doesn't happen to the President of the United States, do you know what I mean, or the President of France. But there's something really charming about... I do agree. The Prime Minister's wife popping off to the January sales. So despite all that bargain hunting, Ramsay MacDonald was horrified and commented that it cost so much that his salary as Prime Minister for the time in his office didn't even cover the bill. And his new Labour Party was so fragile that he may actually not be in office by the time they paid off all of the stuff. Not to paint Margaret MacDonald as some kind of idiot, because she was a prominent campaigner herself and was involved in starting the trade schools for young women to train in skilled work, which we touched on when we discussed the textile industry in our episode on the birth of British Vogue. Ramsay MacDonald also began a tradition of the Prime Minister's Library, which is a collection of books that was curated and added to by each Prime Minister over the years. So Winston Churchill, with his massive ego, included (laughs) books on his father and his ancestor, Marlborough, whilst Harold Macmillan brought in the complete set of works of Kipling. And there are so many stories over the years about Downing Street being like a fragile antique, which could at any moment tumble to the ground. The Macdonalds once hosted the Glasgow Orpheus Choir, who sang in the stateroom on the first floor to entertain some royal visitors. And after the concert, it was found that the floor was giving way under the weight of all of the singers, and cracks appeared in the ceiling below. So what do you do if cracks appear in the ceiling? Oh, you do a really well-organised, under-budget renovation of the situation. Such as getting stamp paper and putting it on the cracks. Phenomenal. Also, during a pre-war party, uh, Mrs Anne Chamberlain hired a number of waitresses and engaged her friends to be placed on the doors in order to make sure that all the guests kept moving because the floors were so unsafe that they couldn't actually hold that many people per room. So her mates were just like, oh, why don't we just pop into the next room? Should we just do a little perambulation? The Second World War, of course, took its toll and the ceiling had to come down in many places and there was dusty debris all over the carpets during the time. And meanwhile, number 12 was actually at that point just a ground floor and basement because it had been gutted in a fire in 1879. Moving forward a bit, when Harold Macmillan was Prime Minister, in 1959 the American president, who was then Dwight Eisenhower, was visiting Downing Street and it was for this historic live TV broadcast with the Prime Minister that never happened before. But unfortunately, Macmillan was suffering with such anxiety because he was terrified that the floor would give way at any moment under the weight of the television camera and the equipment. It didn't obviously fall down and kill the president and the prime minister. So We would have heard of that. Probably. Harold Macmillan was one of two Haralds to be prime minister during the 1960s. So we've had the same number of Haralds governing us as women so far. Anyway, when the contractors took a look at the building, turned Downing Street, which hadn't been fixed up in a non-emergency way since before the wars, it turned out to be a right state, as we've just heard. The floorboards were rotten through, and the walls only stood up because the plaster over them was holding everything together. This place is so dangerous. I don't know how it was standing based on these descriptions. 
but a renovation was in the works. Phew. And Raymond Erith was appointed as the head architect. And Raymond Erith was a classical architect who bucked the trend of the modernist climate in the 1960s. He sought to restore the building and preserve its rich history. He said of himself, Certainly I have built nothing of any architectural interest. So clearly he was very self-effacing. And his approach to Downing Street was, I do not intend to leave my mark on the additions to Downing Street, nor on number 12. I attach no importance at all to originality or modernity. He didn't know how to sell himself, did he? And he did actually achieve his purpose, but it almost drove him mad. Uh And he nearly resigned several times. Obviously, the bill to restore Downing Street to its glory was ginormous. You surprised me! (laughs) And it took much, much, much longer than expected. (laughs) But it did leave Downing Street as a proper building fit for the head of state. Not the war-damaged, cheap mishmash built by that profiteering scoundrel we talked about in the first episode, George Downing. We've reached 1960s and it's finally a real building. (laughs) Okay, pick a new card. It's a cat. Hooray! I'll do the cat this time. So obviously we know the first cat was the first. Uh So no prizes for originality because after Peter retired, the next cat was called the imaginative Peter II. Right. But sadly, Peter II was run over after only six months on the job. Oh no! (laughs) So um, the next cat, Peter III, stepped into his paws. We're just moving on. We're not going to take a moment to memorialise Peter II. Well, he didn't do very well, obviously. He didn't get much done. Peter III started his work in 1947. And Peter III loved the limelight. He appeared on TV many times and he had a host of adoring fans. So like any celebrity, his public were fiercely loyal and they took issue with the government's very measly food allowance. The Home Office replied to one grievance of a letter with The mice that Peter are employed to catch are not perks. They are intended to be, and should be, his staple food. Peter's emolments, which I've just learned is a fancy word for salary, emolments, are not designed to keep him in food. If they were, then they would also keep him in idleness. So when he wasn't appearing on TV, Peter apparently liked to leave the gifts of dead pigeons on various office workers' desks. That's cats for you. People love cats so much, and they're kind of evil. Like, I like them, but they do things like this. But that is a gift. That is a genuine, heartfelt (laughs) gift from a cat. So actually, it's a very nice thing for a cat to do. Okay. Cat person. And just like Peter I, Peter III served for 17 years. And he had a government burial and is his own marble headstone. Right, next card. It's a cat. Another member of the cat family. There is a backup front door for number 10, which they just keep in a room somewhere. If the normal one is being repaired or repainted, they take every scrap of metal off the door, they unscrew it. So this is where I brought the cat in. They have a lion door knocker on it. Ah. So, uh-huh. so they unscrew that, the letterbox, the doorknob, and the number 10, and then they put them all on a spare door, which they then rehang, so they're organised enough to do that. Why not have two identical doors? Or maybe they're really historic. Maybe they've been there all this time. Mm. They should have a dummy door if they're going to have to repair the other one. I totally agree. And I'm also worried that during the time they're doing that, is there just no door? And most importantly, do either of these doors have a cat flap? Oh my god, they don't. How does a cat get in and out? I know cats just will shadow themselves in through walls if necessary. I've got a cat again. Okay, go for it. 
I'm going to keep with the first cats. So this, so we've had Peter the first, second and third. Okay. Next in the nine. I, I mean, I feel like you're about to tell me that Peter the fourth was nominated. Well, there's a bit of a twist on it. So in 1964. Swing in London. The Isle of Man government were the unlikely providers of the next official mouser. Um, and they gifted the Manx cat. And they called this cat, and wait for it because I can't pronounce it, Maniha Katadu. That is a twist. Ma- Maniha Katadu. Yeah. I don't know where it derives from and I won't pretend to know. And Manx cats don't have tails. The Home Office obviously respected this pedigree name and they decided, no, we're going to name her Petter. <laughs> and a war began with the Isle of Man. <laughs> so um, Petter, P-E-T-A, uh, was a lady cat and she got a pay rise due to her diplomatic status. That is hard to get around there. Like MPs cannot get pay rises. Well, Petter did. And she didn't actually last that long because she was described often as fat and lazy. Oh my God. And she didn't live That up... sounds sexist. <laughs> it, the, the sexist cat agenda... <laughs> You can leave park alone. It for a minute, right? She didn't also live up to her diplomatic background, and she was almost responsible for causing an international ruckus. Peter fought often with the Prime Minister of the time, Harold Wilson's cat, who was called Nemo. And when Mary Wilson tried to break up one particular fight, she was scratched so badly by Petter that it drew blood, and the injury caused her to cancel the dinner with the Italian Prime Minister. Wow. And unsurprisingly, just after four years... Petter was fired. No wonder. You mentioned that the that Petter fought with the Prime Minister's cat, so the mouser is not the same as the Prime Minister's cat. No, so these are actually Home Office cats. So all of the original cats that I'm talking about were technically under the remit of the Home Office. Ah, oh, okay. Right, next one. You pick. It's a catastrophe. So we're going to keep with the theme about the 1960s and Downing Street almost falling down. Um, because the architect we were talking about, Raymond Erith, whilst he was busying himself trying to sympathetically restore Downing Street, plans were also being hatched elsewhere to completely demolish and redesign the entirety of Whitehall. <gasps> Downing Street was almost levelled in favour of a South Bank-style concrete jungle throughout all of Whitehall. I quite like the South Bank Centre, but I don't know if I want it, if I want one everywhere. You'd have to imagine what it looks like, and it isn't even remotely as charming as the South Bank Centre. Um, these were mooted by the Minister of Public Building and Works, and they endorsed the plans of the architect Sir Leslie Martin, who did the South Bank Centre. Mm. So he was going to get rid of almost everything, from Westminster Abbey all the way to Horse Guards Parade. So every grade one classical building, like the Foreign Office, would be demolished and a kind of multi-layered giant concrete structure with interconnecting buildings and bridges would be built. So it would have been like a superstructure for all of the government offices. Apparently, the cabinet loved the plans. Really? Even the really, really conservationist Victorian society were more or less actually behind it And the only reason it wasn't taken up was because of a lack of public funds to pay for a 15-year construction process. That's so surprising to me, because in the first part, we learned about how, like, a lot of the buildings around there are from Henry VIII's time, or, or, you know, like, the time of the Civil War and stuff. I'm amazed that they were like, yeah, yeah, just knock it down, build a shopping mall. The Victorian society were like, 90% of it can go. And nowadays, they've really backtracked on that. They've pretended that they never said it. Next one. It's catastrophe. Now we're getting into the juicy stuff. So the heading of this fact is sleaze. Harold Macmillan, 
left office in 1963 after what could definitely be described as a catastrophe. It was the Profumo Affair. It doesn't sound that bad on the surface of it. The Secretary of State for War, John Profumo, had a brief affair with a 19-year-old model called Christine Keeler. Sounds perfectly standard. (laughs) It was a tiny bit scandalous, but it really became a problem when it turned out she'd also slept with Yevgeny Ivanovich at the Soviet embassy. Because it was the early 60s, the media covered it up rather than exposing it, because obviously the rights of men in suits to sleep with 19-year-old models was sacrosanct. And all of the men of politics breathed a little sigh of relief. But then one man, MP George Whig, called Profumo out on it in the house. So was that like a grudge between them or...? I don't know, actually, but it's this thing that you're allowed to break like media embargoes in the house. It's happened recently with the super injunctions. Okay, wow, I never knew that. Yeah, it's quite cool, actually. Uh, Married Profumo totally denied he'd done anything, but he was quickly busted. And eventually he had to admit that he'd lied to the House of Commons, which was the real crime. Well, in their eyes, it wasn't a crime. This was all a massive deal. And before this, there really wasn't a sort of like lack of trust in public figures. So this is like a really momentous moment in English history. I think this is now where the modern times come in where cover-ups versus, you know, people in power being able to just get away with things is really coming to the fore. I really agree with that. And um, speaking of Macmillan, he loved to gossip. (laughs) Like us. And he would always gossip with the Queen, actually. So when all these confidential letters were declassified... This is Elizabeth II by this stage, yes, to clarify. Obviously. So all of these letters were declassified. Now, we don't see what the Queen says, but we see what Harold Macmillan says to the Queen. And he exchanged loads of letters during the Profumo affair. And he would write that things like, Christine Keeler loved publicity. But when he was being particularly catty, he would, in his letter, just score it out. So that obviously the Queen could still read it, but it kind of looked like he was... Oh no, I couldn't possibly say such a thing. Exactly. Nice. So we don't know what the Queen said in return. Do you think that's because they've censored that, so we'll never find out the Queen's personal stuff? I think the Queen operates differently when it comes to the rules on class on declassification. She's not part of the government. She's never done anything scandalous. We're never going to do a podcast where it's like, the Queen's scandalous life. I love that, though. So poor Macmillan was rushed to hospital shortly after he resigned around all of this Profumo affair business. And he was looking back on the whole thing and still writing to the Queen, his Bessie, <laughs> and said, Had this affliction come upon me at some other time, I could have bowed to the surgeon's knife, been stitched and recovered and resumed my toil. But now I recognise that my days as Prime Minister are numbered. So Profumo effectively brought down the government with one little dalliance. But actually, I looked into him, and surprisingly, after he got the sack as Secretary of War, he went on to live quite a sort of decent life. He worked as a cleaner at a charity in the East End, but I mean, for decades. So I have become a surprising John Profumo fan. <laughs> um, some other insane political scandals, just to wedge that into this fact, although they didn't exactly involve number 10, include the Thorpe Affair, which was came up again in the news recently, and it's when the leader of the Liberal Party, Jeremy Thorpe, was arrested after supposedly, allegedly, hiring a hitman to kill his model boyfriend. Model is very important in this yeah, for the newspapers. Actually, he wasn't a model, he was a try he tried to be a model. Oh really? Oh you know. Yeah, yeah. Because it was um there's a book that's just come out about about this. It must exactly. be an anniversary or so. or maybe he died recently, I don't know. I was talking about it just last night and it, it's a very interesting story and that this model boyfriend was not a sympathetic character at all. Blackmailer? 
blackmailer. He kind of got married to various people in order to kind of obtain advantages. He, he wasn't a good guy. Oh, no. But I mean, nonetheless, we'd like to emphasise we don't think he deserved to be assassinated by a hitman on the moor. But luckily, the hitman was so useless, he shot the dog that the model boyfriend was walking and the model boyfriend ran away. I think all subsequent scandals pale in comparison to this. So I'm just not even going to go on. Well, you, you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to disagree with you. Oh, because obviously, scandals in government don't come at just a casual shooting of a dog on a moor. <laughs> Um, and there are amazing scandals, like, just to mention one, uh, the MP and peer, Bob Boothby, was having an affair with the then Prime Minister's wife for 30 years, and he shared a lover rent boy with the gangster Ronnie Cray. He was busy. And in an example of complete white middle-class corruption, there were all of these sex parties going on. And loads of people high up in the government were discovered. White middle class people are constantly having sex parties, that much I know. (laughs) And they were discovered um, by the press having these parties. So instead of them coming clean, basically they got the Prime Minister's lawyers involved and all of the government lawyers to gag and threaten the press. And it worked. So none of it came out. And in fact, Boothby went on to be knighted. That's just completely unfair. And and my guy, John Profumo, lost his job over it. In semi-defence of this situation, though, some of these sex parties were largely the gay people in government. And it would have been, obviously, semi-criminal. I was going to say, actually, like, we're not just picking on people. It was still a crime up to around this time. And it was, like, really, like, frowned upon socially. And you couldn't be a politician, necessarily, or being out gay. So some of these things aren't our only scandals. And right up to the 90s, you know, things are scandals purely because people turn out to be gay. And the only way that we can kind of throw some shade on this situation is, A, we're talking about a sex worker who's obviously been taken advantage not only by a crusty old white man, but also the involvement of gangsters like Ronnie Cray. Do you want to pick a card? I will. It's a cat! So we'll go back to World War II with Churchill, who we said we don't particularly like, but still, he loved cats. That is a point in his favour if he's an animal person. And maybe when you were saying earlier about his love of two things, you would be wrong about the sexist connotations because he also said, well, his secretary said of him, he always had a cat, if not two. (laughs) His love of two things. I love this. It's tenuous. And his favourite cat was called Nelson, who was with him all the way during the war. He was adopted by Churchill after he saw Nelson chase a dog out of the Royal Naval offices. That is quite bold. And obviously he called him Nelson after Admiral Nelson and described him as the bravest cat I ever knew. Nelson was quite bullish like his owner and in a beautiful symmetry chased out Chamberlain's cat, but he was still there and was nicknamed the Munich Mouser. The Munich Ma- Ah, but do you know why? Because when he came back and said his stupid catchphrase at the window, he'd come back from M- Munich. Oh, that is shade. Okay, pick a card. Any card. Just a little quick one from me. Wilberforce the cat came to Downing Street in 1973 under Prime Minister Ted Heath. And he must have been a charmer because he stayed until 1986, serving under four prime ministers, including Margaret Thatcher. She brought him back some tin sardines from the Soviet Union, apparently. And this is considered to be a really big give because people would have done anything to get a tiny bit of attention from her. Oh, so God, all yeah. these like cabinet ministers were like, why does the cat get tin sardines? I want tin sardines. Wilberforce eventually retired to the countryside, which is apparently not a euphemism, although he must have been quite an old cat by that time. 
Oh, that's a nice cat story. Yeah, I thought I'd throw one in there. Okay, next card. It's a catastrophe. Okay, we're getting spooky. It is ghost sighting. Harold Wilson, the second Harold, is the only Prime Minister to admit having seen a ghost. Apparently, it is a woman dressed in pink. No more details are available. A failure of imagination by Wilson, and even more by all the other PMs, or maybe they just don't want to admit to all of the spooky goings-on in all of these historic buildings. I'm going to add a bit of theory in here about what may have something to do with Anne Chamberlain, who was Neville Chamberlain's wife. So she did a lot of interior design work when she came in in 1937, and she moved the residential floor up one from the first floor to the second floor, and she transformed all of the main drawing rooms, including the middle drawing which had pink walls and red furniture. So the drawing room is now famous for being painted different colours depending on the temperament of the Prime Minister of the time. So, for example, it was painted green during Thatcher's time, and before that, during Wilson, it was a pale blue. So, I think that the woman dressed in pink was maybe Mrs Chamberlain's ghost who haunted Harold Wilson because he was so angry at changing the pink drawing room to a blue one. That is tenuous. When you said theory, I was like, maybe Anne Chamberlain died there under suspicious circumstances. Do you know what? Why not? It's another catastrophe. Cool, we're on to Thatcher. Uh, The book I've already slagged off that I read by Christopher Jones was published during the Thatcher era. I'm not saying the book is a catastrophe, there's more coming. And it is decidedly not hard-hitting journalism this time. It features, in its picture section, a bowl of lavender that Margaret Thatcher brought into number 10. And unbelievably, and I quote... The part of the private flat that does rather disappoint Mrs Thatcher, as a housewife, is the kitchen. I mean, I'm sure she gave a tiny... Um, moving cat. on. A tiny, oh. tiny little cat about that. Jones does manage the feat of making me more annoyed at his weak book than at Margaret Thatcher herself. Well, Thatcher couldn't escape any kind of uh, domestic scrutiny, though. And in the declassified memos, there was lots about Thatcher moving house and her, about her being particularly thrifty. She even made her husband Dennis swap his Rolls Royce for a Ford Katina. She was frugal and she balked at the cost of replacement crockery. And she said in a memo, I can use my own crockery. And iron lady puns aside, she found that the cost of an ironing board at £19 was far too much and wrote, I have an excellent ironing board at home, which is not in use. I don't even disagree with this. I guess if you've got stuff at home, bring it. The point is that obviously none of the other memos about moving house have really been that that, that looked no, into. No, she had to do all this stuff very publicly so that she could keep being the housewife. But uh, saying that, the preoccupation in rehousing didn't actually stop with Thatcher. And as you said earlier, famously, Tony Blair booted out Gordon Brown from number 11. And the fragile egos <laughs> of the men at Downing Street does deserve some attention as well. Uh, Even more attention. There was a crisis in 1979 when the French president was due to visit Downing Street and the new Lady Prime Minister. Bonjour. Memos were exchanged between the French and the British diplomats about the importance of some chairs. Now, the Prime Minister's chair in the cabinet room has arms on it, whilst all the others in there don't. The French thought that it was only proper that the president also had an equal chair with arms. And there was so much squabbling... And it was actually pointed out by the Brits that it never presented an issue before. But clearly the diplomats were too diplomatic to point out that perhaps it had something to do with the Prime Minister being a woman. 
Um, sadly, we don't know who won Chairgate, as the only photo of the President's visit was them both standing side by side. I'm going to pick a card. It's a catastrophe. Oh, this one's sad. Lady Campbell Bannerman. The last Liberal Prime Minister, Henry Campbell Bannerman, moved into number 10 in December 1905 with his wife Charlotte. She called it a house of doom. And she wasn't wrong. Lady CB was from a military family and was very involved in politics. In fact, it seems that she was the really ambitious one in the marriage. And if they lived now, maybe it would have been Charlotte as Prime Minister. She suffered severely from illness, and when she had to play hostess at 10 Downing Street, was propped up in a chair to greet people. She only lasted until August of 1906, when she went for a holiday in the famous spa of Marienbad, where she died. She and Henry had been married for 45 years, and he went spare without her. He had a heart attack just a month after her death, and was dead by the following summer. He died just 19 days after resigning, so is not one of the seven prime ministers to die in office, but he is the only prime minister to actually die at Downing Street. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That's very, very depressing, that, that catastrophe. Well and done. interesting. I have catastrophe. Aha. Ooh, even more depressing stuff. It's assassination attempts. Sir Robert Peel, Ted Heath, Margaret Thatcher and John Major all had attempts made on their lives. Someone mailed a bomb to number 10 in 1982 and an IRA attack on John Major happened in Downing Street itself in 1991. An IRA operative threw mortar shells into the back garden of number 10 and near the Foreign and Commonwealth offices down the road. It came within 30 yards of the Prime Minister and the rest of the Cabinet and exploded. Luckily, number 10 was defended from bomb attack because they'd thought about this. But the windows were smashed and it made a big hole in the lawn. Four people were hurt, but luckily no one was killed. Um, I'll do another one. Mm-hmm. Cat. Okay, it's 1989 um, and in comes Humphrey, who is a semi-controversial cat. So maybe he's a little bit of a cat astrophy. He was accused of eating a nest of baby robins that he found on a windowsill. I know, your face says oh. it all. It's It's quite bad. But in Humphrey's defence, well, the Prime Minister stood by him. That was uh, John Major. And actually, in 2006, the journalist who apparently got this scoop and ran the story said he had no evidence. This was just nonsense, pretty much. But why wouldn't a cat eat a nest of baby robins? It could have happened. Do cats have political affiliations? It's really interesting you say that, because I wasn't going to put this in. But the cats themselves don't. But they did a study where they showed MPs a picture of a cat. And they said, oh, uh, this is, you know, like the Conservative leader's cat. Or they said, it was the Labour leader's cat. And it was literally whichever party you were part of, you were like, that's a good cat. That's a nice, beautiful, I like that cat. Or you'd be like, terrible cat, evil, terrible cat. So the cats don't care either way about politicians, but the politicians do. Humphrey's career ended with the arrival of Tony Blair after the 1997 election. The Blair family did not like cats. They They don't strike me as cat lovers. I mean, I want to say Cherie Blair apparently just does not like them. And they did this staged photo where she's holding Humphrey, who who looks like dead behind the eyes. And apparently Alistair Campbell drugged him to get him to do that photo with Cherie, which is so the spin era. I love that anecdote. Well, at any rate, within six months of them arriving, Humphrey is gone. And Tory MP Alan Clark was so suspicious about Humphrey being moved out to the countryside that he accused the Blairs of having had him shot. I know, like the Thorpe affair, but cat. 
this forced number 10 to take journalists to where Humphrey was living with this old couple in a suburb somewhere and like show him around to prove that they hadn't had a cat shot for political reasons. So it all started out quite jovially. And then now... It's dark. It's dark. Humphrey was succeeded for a short while by Alistair Campbell's own cat, a black and white cat called Sybil, but she just didn't take to the political life and went back to live in Scotland in 2009. And after Sybil, after a break of a couple of years, in came Larry, who we all know and love. And that's, I think, our last cat fact. It is, but we have got more scandals, so should we just read those out? We've got one more catastrophe. Okay, go for it. Right, so my catastrophe is about the dawn of World War I. In the early 20th century, trouble was brewing with the international relations with Germany, and in Downing Street, the cabinet was divided. Winston Churchill, who was then the First Lord of the Admiralty, which is the head of the Navy, was gunning for war. Meanwhile, Lloyd George was convinced that war wouldn't happen. The Prime Minister at the time, Herbert Henry Asquith, kept the peace between them by telling them that their dispute on the matter may actually force a general election – and nobody wanted the public's point of view on it. <laughs> but with the assassination of the Archduke of Austria in 1914, the issue was brought to the forefront of the agenda, and the cabinet were almost in continuous session for a few days. Churchill threatened to resign if troops weren't immediately mobilised, and crowds of people descended on Downing Street, both in support and against the war. Lloyd George described hearing the hum of this surging mass as they were in the cabinet room trying to make their decision. Because you could just go and protest in Downing Street at this time. It's amazing to me. Absolutely. Stand right outside the front door. I mean, we've touched upon in the first episode, there is a public right of way that then has now been shut off. But yeah, back in the day, you could literally go right up to the front door. So whilst all this was happening in the cabinet, Herbert's wife, Margot Asquith, described the night that the cabinet made their decision. The clock on the mantelpiece hammered out the hour, and when the last beat of midnight struck, it was silent as dawn. We were at war. I left to go to bed, and as I was pausing at the foot of the staircase, I saw Winston Churchill, with a happy face, striding towards the double doors of the cabinet room. For God's sake. So he was thrilled. The next time that Downing Street would experience such crowds was four years later, when Lloyd George was the Prime Minister. The news of armistice reached Britain in the middle of a November night in 1918, and the Prime Minister and his wife were woken up by a crowd of people celebrating outside and filling Downing Street with every nook and cranny being full of people, all waiting for an appearance by Lloyd George at the window of Downing Street. I'm imagining Lloyd George going to the window and having this wonderful news to tell to people who've been so devastated by four years of the most traumatic war that had ever happened. And I think there is actually a photograph of it. And you can see Downing Street completely full. And there's Lloyd George kind of peering out the window with his hand up. And it does look truly, truly joyous. That's wonderful. So that brings us to the end of cats and catastrophes. But <laughs> I think we'll wrap things up with just a few bits of Downing Street trivia. Mm-hmm. Um, and my first bit of trivia is about just before World War One ended. And someone actually sent the Prime Minister an Egyptian scarab for luck. And it was intercepted by the then housekeeper, Sarah, who was so horrified by this Egyptian scarab, she begged Mrs Lloyd George not to keep it in the house. And she was sure that it would bring a curse on everyone. Oh, that was the era where they were discovering all the tombs in Egypt? absolutely. Such a cool era. But 
Ignoring the superstition, Lloyd George didn't care and wanted to keep the scarab, only for it to suddenly disappear. So everyone searched high and low, but eventually a sheepish Sarah had to admit that she buried it in the garden, but had conveniently forgotten where she buried it. <laughs> and to this very day, that scarab has never been found. Oh, it hasn't brought a curse on the house, luckily. Or has it? Or has it? Uh, my bit of trivia is, it's a distant one, but obviously we've had a couple of hundred years across these two parts of the podcast of mainly white men running the country. And we've had two women now, that's cool. But um, I did manage to find out that the closest we have gotten to a non-white prime minister is Lord Liverpool of all people. And I mean, he it's, it's, it's tenuous. He was a quarter Indian, which is really interesting because obviously Britain has this really close relationship with India and many people moved there, you know, like, why not? You'd, I'm actually surprised we haven't had someone who's more than a quarter Indian. Yeah. Um, and all hail our glorious, more diverse future, I say. Absolutely. Um, mine's a bit less political. <laughs> um, so some of the famous dinner guests, because obviously Downing Street hosts a lot of state dinners and other kind of famous celebrations, but people who have been wined and dined at Downing Street include Mahatma Gandhi, mm. Mussolini, oh. and Greta Garbo. Very glamorous. And there was that famous uh, party, Cool Britannia, that the Blairs had, where they had all the Britpop uh, artists that I'm completely indifferent to personally, but it sounds like a good party. My last bit of trivia is a bit of fun, which is that prime ministers have been very lucky in love. So in all of these hundreds of years, only two prime ministers have gotten divorced. The unlucky Duke of Grafton and Anthony Eden. And I actually didn't look into why this happened, but I should have done. So I'm going to speculate. <laughs> Maybe it was the scarab. Oh, the scarab cursed Anthony Eden. Although obviously that came way, way after. Yeah, and the Duke of Grafton was presumably before in the era where it was all dukes and lords. We're going to blame the scarab. Thank you for listening to Fierce City, telling the tales of our very favourite city in the world and our home, London. If you like our podcast, then please subscribe or write us a review on iTunes. You can also email us at londonhistorypodcast at gmail.com if you want to get in touch or let us know what topics you would be interested to hear. You can also tweet us at fiercecitypod. Maybe you can at Larry at the same time. Oh my time. god, I'm going to follow Larry. I'm going to try to slide into Larry's DMs tomorrow morning. Fierce City was written and produced by the two voices you have heard. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>